So as I mentioned, I'm um, excited uh, and uh, energized to explore a theme of the roots of our practice. What are the roots of our practice here at Spirit Rock? And how did we come to be doing what we're doing? Um, Particularly focusing today on the roots of our mindfulness practice. And this was, uh, I think, supported when I mentioned that uh, I had had the idea come up during uh, a month of retreat in March. And I had the idea, oh, it would be very interesting to really explore the roots, uh, the different roots of our practice and understand better where we came from. And uh, I brought the idea to this group uh, in April and people were enthusiastic. And I hope you still are. (laughs) I remain enthusiastic, even more enthusiastic after the excitement of learning PowerPoint and really getting into it. And so uh, I have a sort of multimedia presentation here with uh, a number of slides. And the aim will be to today, and I I imagine uh, several further sessions, the aim today will be to look particularly at the roots of our mindfulness practice. Our mindfulness practice is the central practice that we do here at Spirit Rock. And what I'll want to do about, probably for about half of the time, is to talk about some of the background for how we came to be practicing mindfulness, and in particular, the style and techniques of mindfulness that we uh, use here at Spirit Rock, and to show how those uh, have come, both from the Buddhist tradition generally, but more particularly focusing on the connection with the, uh, some innovations that took place in Burma, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. Quite interesting. And uh, I'll be connecting this with our practice and be encouraging us in the next week to uh, first of all have a regular practice, but do so in the manner of the particular uh, techniques that we that really are our found, comprise our foundational method here at Spirit Rock, which is that of mindfulness through a uh, regular and consistent noting of what's happening in the present moment where we start with the breath and then bring out uh, our awareness into the rest of experience. So I wanted to start just by looking at this um, practice of mindfulness, which here we are at Spirit Rock. We're uh, practicing uh, mindfulness here. We have a a large center. This is, in some ways, um, could be seen to be the most... um, um, extensive center in this tradition in the Western world, right right here. And here it is, you know, here we have an image of the upper hall, the retreat hall, with uh, the, a Buddha statue. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Okay, there we go. I'm not sure what was happening. So here we have the people practicing somehow. Something has really taken root uh, in the West. Okay. This is not working right. Okay, now I think I've got it. Okay, um, <laughs> so sorry about that. Uh, so mindfulness is getting very big in our culture. 
I don't know if this is the epitome of mindfulness appealing to business people, but it could be interpreted that way. Cover of Time magazine earlier this year, the mindful revolution, promising many benefits. Mindfulness going into the schools. Some 15 or 20,000 students have studied mindfulness in the Bay Area through the Mindful Schools program. The Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA, getting university credibility, giving training programs. Um, the director of education for that program is Diana Winston, who is a Spirit Rock teacher and a, you know, someone who, I, who I've taught with for many years. Somehow, we, much of the techniques, let me back up. Um, here we are in this situation in the contemporary world where we've uh, had this explosion of interest in mindfulness and we find it interesting. And this is very, 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 very um, fascinating for a number of reasons. You know that this is coming several centuries after there was seemingly a decline of religion. There's a process that we call secularization, where religion was removed in most Western cultures from the public sphere, from any involvement with politics and with governance, was taken out of its uh, previous connection with science, with knowledge of the world. And in a way, uh, religion was really marginalized. It was confined in large part to the private sphere, what we did in our private lives. And here it is, something that appears to be religious is making an incredible comeback. You know, even as many scholars said, religion is a thing of the past. So what's going on? You know, what's going on in a period of history when the main forces seem to be science and democracy and capitalism and globalization you know, and so forth. And so there's, there's a lot that we could explore here I, that I've, I personally am interested. I'm not going to go so much into that, but clearly something was very much missing in the contemporary world. You know, that the, uh, the religions had become more focused on the social aspect. The med there have been meditative dimensions to Christianity, to Judaism, to Islam. They've been marginalized over the last period of time. If you were interested in meditation, you would have a hard time finding it in the churches and synagogues, let's say, of the 20th century, certainly the last, part, last half of the 20th century. You know, in reality, the, the strong contemplative dimension in Christianity, uh, particularly Catholicism, started to get marginalized maybe seven or 800 years ago. In, and, and now it's quite marginal. You'd have to go, um, up until 30 or 40 years ago, you'd have to go to monasteries, like Trappist monasteries, um, to find the contemplative dimension in Christianity. I had friends who were looking for the meditative dimension in Judaism and searched far and wide, maybe in the 1970s and had a very hard time finding. I remember one friend finally tracked down a real Hasidic teacher he could study with in, in Tel Aviv or something, you know? And, and so that was, that, that was marginalized. Of course, that's come back tremendously in significant part because of the development of Buddhism in the United States has helped Christians and Drew, Jews and Muslims discover their own contemplative roots. And now we have, for example, many contemplative Christian and Jewish organizations. You know, we have a, in Berkeley, there's Chokmet Halev, which is a Jewish meditation center. Wouldn't have been the case 50 years ago. Would have been very hard to find. So here we are, you know, what's, how did all this happen? What's the story? You know, what, how did this come into, come into being? And so, part of the answer is that through a, a very interesting process, the meditation methods of this man, Mahasi Sayadaw, Sayadaw is a Burmese term just for teacher, his methods, which be, were very, became very prominent in Burma 
around the middle of the 20th century somehow became the methods that got brought to the West and became the main techniques at Spirit Rock and at IMS and became the main methods that got brought into a lot of the other secular applications of mindfulness. Very, very interesting. In fact, you look to the methods of uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is one of the main ways that mindfulness has brought into the, been brought into the medical field. They use techniques that more or less come from Mahasi Sayadaw. So how did, how did that happen? That's, I want to tell that story and then maybe in the second half really bring us to what the actual practices are and encourage us to practice them in the next week. But there's partly a very interesting story here. And this will be the story of the spread of Buddhism, the history of um, how, how, what happened in Burma in the last 150 years, and how things came to the West. And the title of a, uh, a book on the movement of Buddhism to the West, How the Swans Came to the Lake, by Rick Fields, wrote a book of that title, giving, giving that history. So, and I'm going to f- focus particularly on mindfulness today, and next week I'm going to focus on how practice develops, what we might call the development or progress of insight. Um, you know, how we come from practicing mindfulness to liberation, really, really the map of what happens in our practice. Excuse me? <laughs> Does his family get, get royalties? Um, it's a good question. <laughs> good. And so here's Mahasi Sayadaw. Let's see. Okay. Here's Mahasi Sayadaw near the end of his life. And I actually was uh, able to meet him and study with him when he came to the United States for the first and I think only time in 1978. And we'll come, we'll come back to him. So first of all, to review what uh, the practice of mindfulness is that we inherit from the Buddha and what, uh, what our, practice of mind, our main practice of mindfulness is at Spirit Rock. Generally, mindfulness is part of the total training historically, that a monk or nun would get. And that training was divided into three areas, typically. Well, the first is what would be called sila, or ethical training, which really has to do with how we act in the context of community. And meditation in the traditional setting was always in the context of community. You know, there were meditators who sometimes went off for a little while on their own, but the primary practice was that in communities later uh, became monasteries. And we'll see, we'll see how that tradition worked um, in Burma. Uh, but the very important that there was this uh, social context for meditation. One of the interesting things that happens in the West is that meditation often gets stripped from that social context and also often from the context, from the connection with ethics. So there were these three areas of training, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And they were all interrelated. And as one deepened in meditation, one's ethical sensitivity got uh, increased, in large part by the fact that in the meditation, one could see, especially into the construction of self, and have much more a sense of interdependence with others, less a sense of separation, of being a separate self, just interested in what uh, uh, gets pleasure for me and avoids um, pain, you know, which, is, which is the typical conditioning, and that's the analysis of it. So there are these three areas, ethical training, or how to live a life of integrity with others, the meditative training to develop uh, qualities like mindfulness, wisdom, equanimity, compassion, loving-kindness, concentration, and so forth. 
and then the training in wisdom, which is to see things as they are. And these are, again, all taken as interrelated. The wisdom might be expressed especially through teachings. For you know, the primary teaching and really the core of the teaching comes from the, really the first teaching that the historical Buddha gave, the Four Noble Truths, which are the truths of the reality that there is suffering, that we um, suffer in different ways, that we get stuck in our minds, that we have anguish and stress in various ways, that there are roots, there are, there are roots to that suffering, which is particularly analyzed in terms of some kind of reactivity or, or grasping on to experience or pushing away experience compulsively, and that there is also the possibility of freedom. And there, is a, there, are, there are roots of freedom, there is a path that leads to the freedom, which is to know oneself deeply and to be, um, have a quality of openness, non-grasping, wisdom, care, mindfulness, and love. And that framework when we, has to be remembered because part of what happens in the Western context is that meditation gets taken out of that larger social context and the larger training context. And that can happen for us as well. You know, when I um, was first starting to teach, uh, it was very clear that we in the West had primarily emphasized meditation. And even still, I think you could make the claim that that's the primary emphasis. Understandably, very valuable, very beautiful, but we often lose the connection with ethics and wisdom. When I first started teaching in groups, I was partly responsible for having us study some of the core teachings, and I was surprised how much long-term meditators did not know the core teachings. And that the meditation was quite wonderful, but people often didn't know that. We could say the wisdom dimension may have been underdeveloped, as I think in some ways the ethical dimension may have been underdeveloped. I think there are a lot of people wanting to find the right balance, but this becomes a concern as, me- as meditation gets brought into the larger world, that often that, lar- that context of ethics, of wisdom, and of the aim of freedom is not always there, and meditation becomes something that helps one to relax, or deal with stress, or something else. It can be, can be limited, valuable, but limited, you know, and then and we can uh, and there can be even further dangers, you know, that have existed historically. You know, historically, meditation has sometimes been connected with militarism. In Japan, for example, in the first half of the 20th century, Zen was uh, often used to support Japanese fascism, you know, um, with um, a lot of negative consequences. And later, I, I've actually heard public apologies where they said, we lost the context of ethics. And meditation got made into a technique that could help people uh, actually kill. And you can find actually speeches that were recorded where Zen teachers said, when you march, march. When you shoot, shoot. Stay one-pointed with your focus. You can see that importance of that total context. So that's what the Buddha taught. And he taught mindfulness within that larger context in four main ways. And this comes down to us in, apparently, in multiple traditions um, that there are four foundations of mindfulness. There's mindfulness of the body. There's mindfulness of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's mindfulness of the contents, we might say, of mind, emotion. And then there's mindfulness, I like to think, of some of the larger patterns of experience. This is called mindfulness of dhammas or dharmas. Of this would be where we see the world through a particular framework. We, we are mindful and we notice the patterns that lead to suffering, for example, or the patterns that lead to freedom. So this is really using, in a sense, the building blocks of mindfulness where we've learned to be aware of the breath, aware of the body, aware of the sense of pleasant and unpleasant, aware of thinking, aware of anger, aware of joy, which we could call the constituents of experience, and then we start to look at the more complex patterns of our own experience. And that's the fourth foundation, the way, I've, the way I'm interpreting it. 
And so that's part of the heritage. And then we look and how do we practice here? What's our core practice at Spirit Rock? Well, uh, one thing that's very remarkable is that we are practicing almost entirely as lay people. Historically, that happened almost not at all. Historically, the ones who meditated were the monks or nuns, and even that may have been, over time, a very small minority. So here we, ha- we practice as lay people. We, um, the main form of training that we give here is through intensive retreats. <laughs> is there a window open or something? Or? No, it's the heater. Yeah. And so we practice through intensive retreats, uh, which again has some basis in historical context where there was a range retreat where people would practice intensively. But you'll see the particular model we use actually comes from the Burmese model of intensive retreat practice, intensive meditation uh, separate from the social context. That's actually an innovation. When I first started meditating and doing retreats, I thought that I was practicing just like the Buddha taught and just like people had practiced for 2,500 years. The reality is a little different. I think there's a lot of continuity, but there's also a lot of innovation. And it's quite interesting to see that. I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm just doing something that's been done this way for thousands of years. And again, there are ways that's true, but there are also ways that's not true. So we practice in these retreats, and then we practice mindfulness especially. Um, we learn mindfulness, we practice, we start typically, the main method is we start with the breath, we're aware of the breath, and we stabilize attention to the breath. In some Buddhist traditions, In fact, the norm would be typically that one would develop a significant amount of concentration and start really with concentration practice and then bring it to insight practice. We don't do that. We typically start with the breath, get a certain level of settledness or concentration, and then we open up to what else happens in experience where we try to study it carefully. The main method that has been used at Spirit Rock and at IMS is a method of noting in which we... Uh, stay with experience, with the breath we might say in and out, with the in and out breath, we might say rising and falling, and we use the noting to help support mindfulness. In other words, we use part of the mind that actually is discursive, that's labeling, we use that to help us stay on track and avoid distraction. Very, very helpful method that we can use. And then we bring that out into all the different kinds of experiences. And then, uh, over time, we bring out the mindfulness into our daily life as lay people. Again, fairly innovative. One can't really find such an emphasis, particularly on training for lay people, very much in the history. It's it's interesting. And, uh, of course, very appropriate for our culture. So, okay, so question is, how did we get here? What happened? How, what's the story? So I'll spend some time on that and then some time more seeing with a little more detail the actual method of noting and the method of practice. Okay. So the Buddha lived about almost 2,600 years ago. And very remarkable to think there was this one being who had this tremendous impact And so, Buddhism spread from India in these multiple directions. You know, really in all directions. Westward to Afghanistan, when Alexander the Great uh, came into Afghanistan in 300, I think it was 300 BC, or BCE, he encountered Buddhism there. There were Buddhist, Buddhist statues, and we know that from some of the recent history where the Taliban, remember, uh, exploded some of the great statues of the Buddha. You know, um, it, went, uh, it went throughout India, it went into Southeast Asia, went into what's now Indonesia, went into Tibet, China, Japan, in various ways. 
I'm going to be focusing particularly on how it went into Southeast Asia because the roots of our practice here are particularly in what developed in Southeast Asia. There's a map of Southeast Asia and you can and the main ways that uh, Buddhism developed in the 20th century uh, were in Burma and Thailand. <coughs> Burma was sometimes hard to visit because since 1962 it was a military dictatorship. And, but people could still study there, uh, although um, they, visas were sometimes hard to get. So a lot of people also studied in Thailand. I've, I've stayed at monasteries in Thailand. So a quick history tour from the Buddha 2,600 years ago up to the 20th century. Okay, fasten your seatbelts. So here we come to uh, Burma. This is, these were really uh, temples that were built around the 11th or 12th century. And let me, let me back up. Um, after the death of the Buddha, there were different kinds of development. At first there was considerable unity, but over time there were uh, differences among the different uh, students who called themselves students of the Buddha. And it basically boils down to some were more conservative and some were more liberal. <laughs> it basically comes down to that. Some wanted to stay very, very strictly as they interpreted it, interpreted it with the actual words of the Buddha. And this was complicated because the actual words of the Buddha weren't written down for 500 years. And it was an oral tradition. And so, but nonetheless, there were councils and there were differences. Again, some more uh, conservative, some more liberal. Eventually, over time, there developed 18 different schools of Buddhism. Yeah, this is still in the Indian context. 18 different schools, only one of them survives to this day. And that is the tradition called the tradition of the elders or the Theravada, which is the tradition that came to uh, dominate Southeast Asia. And that is actually the tradition that we have our roots in. It's the only one of the 18 schools that survived intact. The rest developed in different ways. Some of them turned into what would now be called Mahayana, which had different emphases, which went on to become the Buddhism of Tibet, China, Japan, Korea, parts of Vietnam. And the approach that came eastward into uh, Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, was especially the tradition of the Theravada. Again, which is the one that, that we have our roots in. When you look to the text, the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, we have the Theravada version of that. Okay? So, a lot of the movement into Burma and Thailand came from Indian traders. And there were many, many contacts, and there were multiple forms, multiple forms of Buddhism developing in Burma. And I'll fo focus on Burma for the time being because that's the history there uh, is really a big part of what actually develops here. So in uh, Burma, the, there was a king uh, named uh, Anuratha who around the 11th century started a kingdom which, which unified Burma. And it was based in um, what was called Pagan, which is now called Bagan, which was this capital of this uh, kingdom of Pagan. And I'll show some different images from there. Wow. Quite amazing, right? So these are, this was from the 11th, 12th, uh, 13th century. Yeah. So a very rich tradition, and gradually the, uh, there were other forms of Buddhism that had been there in Burma, but over time the Theravada became dominant. 
Now we fast forward to the 19th century. This is the most famous uh, pagoda in Burma called the Shvedagon, which was, I think, built at that time, if I'm, if I'm correct there. And uh, Barack Obama visited it uh, in, I think, two, you know, 2012 and um, talked about having visited the Shvedagon and learning the great teachings of loving-kindness. Yeah. And, and so this is, uh, here's Buddhism in the 19th century. Now what's happening at this time is that the, Bur the British, with their colonial base in India, are expanding eastward. And they are actually start taking over Burma starting around 1825. And it, it occurs in a few steps. And so that becomes actually quite important for what happens in Burma. So again, here's some sense of Burmese Buddhism. Now, very interesting is that the primary activity for the monks or the nuns and the primary activity of Burmese Buddhism was not meditation. That the, the monks, uh, and e even in even with the meditation revival in the 20th century, Jack Kornfield estimated that no more than 5% of the monks that he met took meditation seriously. It's quite interesting. So it's very interesting because many of us lay people take meditation very seriously. Right? Very, very interesting. So what did they do? Uh, there were a few monks in the forest, from, from best I can understand, who actually took meditation quite seriously and meditated a lot, but there were very few. The Burmese monks uh, you know, were there for rituals and praying, but, and they were also very much concerned with study. And they particularly studied a tradition called the Abhidhamma, which is literally the higher dharma or the higher teachings, which was we call a Buddhist psychology, which analyzed experience into very quickly occurring mind moments. And the aim is to, in meditation, would be to actually get the mind still enough so you can see the construction of experience occurring moment to moment. Now, most of these monks primarily studied the teachings and they didn't necessarily apply it in meditation. Some did, but not very many of them. So, but you still have a sense here of the, um, you know, of the beauty and the power of this tradition in Burma. And as this was occurring in the 19th century, the British were coming. Wasn't that, I, I once lived near the um, uh, church in Boston, uh, the Old North Church, which is where Paul Revere made his famous message. Remember, remember that from studying history in whatever, high school? The British are coming, the British are coming. Remember that? So I actually once lived like half a block from that church. But I just remembered that. So the British came in Mandalay and they, by this time, they had control over the whole country. And Burmese army was no match. And this was actually very significant for Burmese Buddhism. Because what happened was that the British insisted on having their rule be secular, as they had done in India, and they no longer actually enforced monastic discipline. They refused to have ways to support the monks and nuns, and there was a lot of concern that the actual, that the, that the discipline, monks and nuns would no longer be disciplined if they created problems. And there was a, a tremendous concern that Buddhism would be, that would be declining. And there actually were prophecies within Theravada Buddhism that at one point Buddhism would totally disappear. And many people in Burma said the coming of the British is the occasion for Buddhism disappearing in our country. And they were very, very concerned. Wouldn't I don't understand what, what happened there. 
Well, this was, this was seen as important that, that traditionally the king had taken a very important role as the supporter of the monastic sangha. And part, in part, this meant uh, having responsibility for, uh, I think, for the discipline of monks and nuns who disobeyed the precepts, who had to be disciplined. And it was seen by many that without that support, the discipline would grow lax. There would be, you know, the whole central support of the community would, would decline. And so many people were concerned. Enter Ledi Sayadaw. And there is a Ledi Sayadaw was a monk who led the revival of meditation and brought meditation to lay people and had brought in the mass revival of, lay, of meditation through lay people through lay people's practice and study that he took to be a direct response to colonialism. And much of what he developed were actually the forms that we use at Spirit Rock. In other words, mass meditation for lay people, later developed into, through his influence, developed into intensive retreats, combination of meditation and study, and it's a very interesting history. He himself was, uh, I think, born in 1846 and became a monk at a young age, but actually uh, went to study. And until he was 40 years old, he never really meditated much. It's very interesting that his, he was primarily a scholar and studied. There were, you know, there were reports of some monks in the forest who meditated, but this was not a main activity. Starting, I think, around 1885, he took about 10 or 15 years where he primarily did meditation. I think he, I think he had some teachers, and he came out of this, really, with this mission to bring meditation out into more prominence, to bring it to lay people, and to um, have this be the basis for insight meditation. There's a very interesting book called The Birth of Insight, which just came out last year, which gives the history of this. I brought this in if anyone wants to take a look. It's a very interesting history. He um, became tremendously popular, also sometimes controversial. Bringing meditation to the center and bringing it to lay people was seen as controversial, and at one point his books were burned. Fast forward a little bit more, and I could say a lot more about Ladi Sayada, but he plays a very important role and influences meditation in Burma. Some of his students um, become um, teachers of some of the main teachers who bring meditation to the West. The influence that he has and the format that he has influences tremendously Mahasi Sayada, who starts teaching you know, around, born in 1904, and starts teaching probably more publicly around 1950 or so, and bring, and starts the uh, method, starts a, a retreat center where lay people could come and do, guess what? Intensive retreats. I think in Rangoon. People, and people would come and take their vacations and do two-week meditation retreats. That method, as far as I know, had not existed previously, that model. And so, uh, as well, the emphasis was on insight meditation and mindfulness. There wasn't an emphasis so much on concentration. And then there was an emphasis on bringing the meditation into daily life for lay people. Now, Mahasi Sayadaw was a monk, and he did emphasize the grounding of the practice in ethics and wisdom. And you can see that in the handout that I gave, he, he starts with that, starts with that in that text. Okay, so a little bit fast forward. Here's again Mahasi Sayadaw later in life. This is what he looked like when I, when I met him. One of the other teachers of, um, uh, who was very influenced by Ladi Sayadaw, uh, Uba Ken, became the teacher of S.N. Goenka, 
who again has been one of the main teachers bringing meditation to the West, using very similar methods as were used by Ledi Sayadaw. And Munindra was a student of uh, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, who became the teacher of Joseph Goldstein. So now we start getting into recognizable figures. And so um, Munindra uh, was the teacher of Joseph and taught him the techniques of Mahasi Sayada, which had that influence from this meditation, insight meditation revival in Burma. Then, in 1976, the Insight Meditation Society is founded, the Sister Center to Spirit Rock. This is Munindra, whom I met a number of times, um, at the Insight Meditation Center. I think that's Joseph Goldstein in the back, the tall one, with the beard and the white. Um, and uh, the techniques that were taught at, at Insight Meditation Society were those of uh, Mahasi Sayadaw. They were the noting techniques. This was in part because here's Jack Cornfield as a monk studying at a, a monastery in Burma where they taught the Mahasi technique. So he learned that, and this was the common denominator that people like Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jacqueline Schwartz, and um, Jack Hornfield had. This was their common method. And so this is what happened. And here's now an authorization. This was that uh, time in 1978 when Mahasi Sayadaw came. He's in the middle there. This is at IMS, and this is a ceremony authorizing these four teachers as insight meditation teachers. Interesting. He was the one who authorized them as legitimate teachers, right? And so it's really following that method. And that, so it's again a, a direct connection back with, from Mahasi Sayadaw to what happened in Burma to the response to colonialism. Interesting, right? And one of my... Uh, Favorite uh, things that happened, I remember from that retreat, I was living at IMS for uh, a little bit after that. I remember after this retreat, it's, it's interesting, you might notice that these, these are the four main teachers, along with Richard Barsky, in the early days uh, of insight meditation. And you can maybe sense from the names that they're all of Jewish background. You have Salzburg, Goldstein, Cornfield, and Schwartz. <laughs> And one of my favorite remembrances from the Mahasi Sayadaw retreat was that some people made a poster, which was, which was a takeoff of an uh, advertisement at the time that you don't have to be Jewish to love Levy's Jewish rye bread. And the poster that was made was, you don't have to be Jewish to teach Vipassana. It showed a picture of Mahasi Sayadaw walking down the country road in Massachusetts. <laughs> So then fast forward to today, here's Joseph Goldstein some years later, and recently came out last year with a new book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, you know, based on his many years of study. And fast forward, here's Jack Kornfield a few years ago, and um, giving his teaching, and here are people like us at Spirit Rock meditating. Right. So, what's, you get a sense of the interesting history, right? Isn't that fascinating? And so the history comes and it leads to us here working with the methods of Mahasi Sayadaw. So I wanted to just say a few words about that and then have a little bit of time for questions. So I think I'm doing kind of okay with time. Okay. So, again, Mahasi Sayadaw teaching especially in the 1940s, 1950s, 60s, and 70s was recognized as one of the great teachers of the uh, 20th century, honored by the Burmese government, honored by many world Buddhist uh, organizations. And the, um, again, with a, a grounding in ethics and meditation and wisdom that was there in that tradition, there was a very strong emphasis on mindfulness. And the very strong emphasis in these training centers on mindfulness. This is Jack's description, Jack Cornfield's description of going to uh, a monastery uh, based on the methods of Mahasi Sayadaw. 
I went to study in a monastery of Mahasi Sayada where the path of liberation focuses entirely on long silent meditation retreats. So interestingly, that's the form that starts occurring in the West, right? Long silent meditation retreats, which had, were not the tradition going back historically, but an innovation in 20th century Burma. Interesting, right? But very valuable. In the Mahasi system, you sit and walk for weeks in the retreat context and continually note the arising of breath, thought, feelings, and sensations over and over until the mindfulness is so refined that there is nothing but instantaneous arising and passing. You pass through stages of luminosity, joy, fear, and the dissolution of all you, looked, you took to be solid. The mind becomes unmoving, resting in a place of stillness and equanimity, transparent to all experience, thoughts and fears, longings and love. Out of this, there comes a dropping away of identity with anything in the world, an opening to the unconditioned beyond mind and body. You enter the stream of liberation. As taught by Mahasi Sayadaw, the first taste of stream entry to enlightenment requires purification and strong concentration, leading to an experience of cessation that begins to uproot greed, hatred, and delusion. And the method to get there is this practice of mindfulness through noting. So one starts with the breath. Starts with the breath, noting the in and the out, or the rising and falling. You train there, and then you gradually bring that to all these different parts of experiences. And the key method is the noting method. Very soft in the mind, like I say, 5% of the attention on the noting is the way we usually teach it, and 95% on the actual experience. And one does this over and over again, the noting helps you keep continuity. If you may have an ex- experience in meditation where you, if you don't use noting and you just rely in your mind just to kind of be as attentive as it might be, how many of us have periods of distraction for 5, 10, 20 minutes at a time? Anyone relate to that? Right. So just a, a few here. Uh, a few here have raised their hands, but probably universal experience. And so the noting method was his innovation. He also uh, particularly emphasized the mindfulness of the breathing in the abdomen and worked with that. You know, it's interesting that you know, we've expanded that somewhat. So we often say, see where the breath is easiest to follow. And then more recently, I think as people have had more of an understanding that for some people the breath is not a neutral object. There may be trauma or, or illness connected with the breath. We've actually opened it up yet further, but still the main method is this noting technique that we uh, keep noting experience. And so when we're walking, we might notice lifting, moving, placing, shifting. We, no- we really keep that noting going. And how many of us have done retreats where we've used the noting practice? Right? So you know that one, and you know that we, it it's, can be maddening at times, but it also can be very, very effective for really letting you know when you're off. You, know, you do walking meditation, lifting, moving, placing, shifting, have it really coordinated with the actual movement of the feet. It helps tremendously to develop concentration, to settle, to see where the mind goes. And so, again, this is, these are the techniques that we use, and I, I hope you have a sense of some of where they came from. And I think we're also, um, in our own way, we are innovating. Part of what this helps me to do is to see, actually, that the methods we use come more out of the last hundred years. They have links with the historical Buddha, but the actual techniques and methods To me, this is very helpful um, personally and as a teacher because it helps me uh, to see that often what's taken to be tradition is more recent. And there's some, uh, I don't know, I mean, I I haven't felt shy about innovating, but it gives me a little more sense of the, um, the fact that innovation is always happening. You know, is always happening historically. And what traditions try to do is they try to say that this is the way it's always been. But typically they're innovating. I think I was trying to find this uh, line from, let's see. There's, a, there's kind of a, a common phrase that uh, 
scholars of religious studies say, which is that uh, those traditions which last the most innovate and claim to be following the tradition. <laughs> those that announce that they're innovating do not last. <laughs> so very interesting. So, so for me, this is very interesting context because to bring our practice into the um, contemporary world, I think we need to also see what works for us. So, Anne, you can, we can keep recording the questions, okay? okay? So, at this point, let me open it up and see if there are any questions of any kind, either about the practice of noting or anything about this in very interesting history. Please, uh, Debbie, and then uh, Adrian, please. So, I think you said that Mahasi Sayadat was the first one to um, come up with noting. Yeah, I'm not sure that he was, but he certainly... He, he popularized it. As far as I know, that's the case, yeah. So the one before him, yeah. Mahasi Lodi or? Ludi Sayadaw. Ludi Sayadaw. Yeah. Okay. Ludi Sayadaw, right. Um, I was unclear as to, you said sort of that he was the first one, the first innovator kind of mm-hmm. with the retreats. Mm-hmm. Well, where did he get that from? Where, I, don't, I was unclear about that link from, because, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not positive, but I, th- I mean, I think there were there were there were certain forest monks who sometimes transmitted. But I'll have to I'll have to do some research and bring that back. Uh, he did it. He, he got it from his own period of meditation. A lot of times they would actually the, the actual texts were there. You know, the the text from the Buddha were there. A lot of times they used the text and just tried to make as much sense of it as they could. Because the texts are meditation manuals in a way, and so they, you know, one could read the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness, which I elaborated on some, and read from that and try to understand what that what that meant. A lot of the technique that uh, Letty Sayada used was actually to try to have the meditation line up with this teaching of the Abhidhamma, which was a way of seeing. Uh, the moment-to-moment constituents of experience to see here's a moment of greed. So a lot of the meditation that he taught was particularly informed by the Abhidhamma. So it would be here's a moment of greed, here's a moment of hatred, here's a moment of uh, delusion, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that was that was that was very strong and even, I haven't mentioned it so much, but Mahasi Saida is still very much influenced by that model, by the teachings and in fact, most Burmese teachers very influenced by the Abhidhamma, which hasn't caught on so much in the U.S. We actually have a teacher coming next year, Steve Armstrong, who mastered that, studied in Burma a lot, and will give a retreat on the Abhidhamma. And I've studied it some. Uh, but I think that uh, Ladi Sayadaw probably is very much influenced by both the text, by the Abhidhamma, and I think by some forest monks. But he probably did a lot of it on his own. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, please. Uh, I have two questions. One yeah. is you said that some of the arms of Buddhism kind of line up between liberal and conservative. Yeah. And, and so was Theravada a liberal branch of this? Or? Uh, Theravada would be uh, seen and saw itself as a highly conservative oh. okay. branch. That it, it claimed to be thoroughly rooted in the teachings of the Buddha and was against innovation in that sense. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that it's, this is the main model that's come to the U.S. and to the West with all this incredible innovation like those original slides mm-hmm. bringing mindfulness into schools, the methods we're using come from the Theravada which was highly conservative. So very interesting. A lot of hands. Uh, can, yeah. I, can I just ask one more yeah. thing? So where is the connection with the Thai forest people? Okay, so interesting. That's part of my uh, long-term plan for this series, (laughs) is to, because um, Jack Kornfield's primary learning was with the Thai forest tradition, which has quite a different emphasis, you know, and quite different methods of meditation. And it's also within a monastic context, so there's always the social context there. It's within a context of community, talking with people, dealing with conflicts, uh, quite different, you know, um, 
quite different than this emphasis on silent retreats, right? So it's very different emphasis. And but Jack Kornfield also studied uh, the Mahasi method. He he went off. He he was at the monastery in Thailand, and he was interested. He I think he when he tells the story, he sometimes suggests that he thought the grass was greener with this intensive meditation. You know, like what are we really doing here at this monastery? <laughs> and he went off to. Um, he went off to study in Burmese monasteries. I think he stayed there about a year, if I remember right. And he came back, but when they were forming the retreat center at IMS, uh, the common denominator among the people who were there, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jacqueline Schwartz, uh, Richard Barsky, Jack Kornfield, was that they had all studied the Mahasi method. And so that's what they used at IMS. Uh, obviously, uh, the Thai forest tradition informs Jack's teaching and actually informs a lot of us. You know, I've also been very influenced by that. And interestingly, for me personally, in 1978, within a, few, within a month or so, I think uh, Mahasi Sayadaw came to IMS. I was living in Massachusetts at the time. Mahasi Sayadaw came to uh, Insight Meditation Society for a 14-day retreat in May. And Achan Cha, the teacher of Jack Cornfield and representative of the Thai forest tradition, came in June for a two-week retreat. Mm-hmm. I went to both of them. <laughs> and it was, it was very, you know, it, it was one after the other. But the methods that were used were very much those of Mahasi Sayadaw for the reason that uh, that was what was shared in common by the teachers. So it's a little bit arbitrary, right? A little bit arbitrary there. Uh, please, yeah. Yeah. Why don't we say our names as well? Oh, yeah. Um, well, when you showed your slides about the uh, meditation in schools, yeah. you know, that came about from the 70s, and I think, when there were a lot of split-off groups that called themselves meditation, but really, you could say that they were cult-like. Oh, oh, yeah. So, and still, just recently, you know, David Lynch tries to get the meditation in schools, public schools in our area, but it really is a program that is um, less um, spoken. Mm-hmm. There is unintended or unspoken intention, I should say, on, on getting some of these programs, and so it's something to, I think, to be very careful about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a question about the, is there some uh, uns- is there are there some unspoken background intentions to some of the ways that mindfulness has entered into the mainstream you know uh, and it's tricky it's a, there, there are a lot of tricky issues and both in both directions actually you know and I know the director of mindful schools which is based in Oakland actually based in the Bay Area and they have a very strict um, approach to have it be secular, you know, and, uh, and it's interesting that it's taken off. I, I don't think, it, I don't think uh, Kansas would be a place where it would take off in the same way because of the possible objections by religious fundamentalists and so forth, that nothing like that's happened in the Bay Area. It has been very strictly secular and connected with psychology and scientific research. And and so there are kind of questions both ways. Uh, there, I think there are questions, uh, are people trying to somehow smuggle Buddhism into the secular context? Or are they secularizing the core aims of Buddhism, which is a different thing? You know, are they secularizing it, which is, always, you know, which is how uh, a great deal of change has her- occurred historically? You know, uh, believe it or not, uh, contemporary science, the original motivation of the early uh, scientists and philosophers of science in like 17th and 18th century was to study the ways of God to justify and glorify God. Mm-hmm. You know, something didn't quite go right with that plan. <laughs> right? you know, so there, there are interesting unintended consequences. <laughs> Uh, so things develop, and there are a lot of complexities. There's also the question, when people secularize meditation, 
are they losing the context and losing the essence in a way which could be uh, problematic or dangerous even. You know, there are a lot of people raising concerns. Intensive meditation particularly is very powerful. People can have uh, difficult experiences. If you've done retreats, you know that there can be strong experiences. Nowadays, mindfulness teachers are being taught, go through a six-month training program, and you're a mindfulness teacher. You know, and they typically don't have training about some of the depths of meditation. Someone who studies mindfulness and really gets into it might go there. And is that ethical? Right? Or even, do we have a responsibility, knowing those depths here at Spirit Rock, to step in to the situation? So a lot of complexities, I think, both ways. And quite a, all sorts of things happening. Please, and um, maybe two more, and then I think that'll do it for our time. Yeah. My name's Pat, and I had a question. How this Burmese meditation tradition differs from the meditation brought over by the Indian gurus or yogis to the Western world? So the question about how the Burmese meditation and the methods that we use here at Spirit Rock differ from some of the Indian methods brought by gurus and yogis and so forth, maybe transcendental meditation, other approaches. Generally, the Indian traditions are Hindu. Okay, well that's... So they're generally Hindu. They come out of the Indian context, so there are quite a few parallels. But they generally uh, are, are not Buddhist. They have different, uh, somewhat different emphases. And um, you can see a lot of parallels, though, because uh, you know, the Buddha himself came out of the Indian context, which we later, you know, very recently, have called Hindu. You know, but they, they would be... Um, uh, generally different, different traditions, and generally mindfulness is an innovation uh, by the Buddha. And you don't find anything quite like mindfulness meditation in most of those traditions. It's a later innovation. You find things which can be parallel. There's some sort of witness meditations in, yoga, uh, in uh, yogic meditation. So there's some parallels. And there was a lot of mixing between the traditions you know, over time because... Um, you know, actually in India, I think up to the present, when Indians look at the Indian, who we would call Hindu, look at the variety of traditions which have developed, they think of Buddhism as what they call a heterodox system, meaning that it's part of the family. They're just a little bit weird. (laughs) They wouldn't say it with that language. So last one, please. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Anya just said, what happened to Jacqueline Schwartz and Richard Barsky? What happened to Jacqueline Schwartz and Richard Barsky? Um, or what happened between them? And, or what, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I know J- Jacqueline, she's now Jacqueline Mandel, and she lives in Portland. I know Richard's story less well. Richard... Um, I think was a teacher for some time. I, he didn't, he was, didn't stay part of the IMS circle. And he died of cancer about 15 years ago. Uh, Jacqueline, she would be called Jackie now, if I remember the story right, she went to practice further in Asia. And I think she w- went as a, um, a kind of a, maybe... It was either a nun or a novice, but I'm not, I'm not positive of that. But in any case, she, in going into uh, the practice situations, I think mostly in Thailand, became very aware uh, in a painful way of the patriarchal structure of, of the Buddhism of Southeast Asia. And she found that she could in, uh, no longer in good conscience count herself part of the Theravada tradition. And so she actually opened up to um, other traditions, is currently a teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, which has its own issues with patriarchy, but there, 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 there are some differences. So that's, that's her history. So she's going strong, based in Portland. You could look her up on a website. Yeah. 
And I think, I, you know, I've, I've had some very interesting conversations with her just in the last few years. Yeah. Okay, how was this? Did you enjoy the, <laughs> enjoy the, you can tell I enjoyed my first PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and it was so much fun. There's so much on the internet, my gosh. And it was fun make, putting this all together. You can see there's so much more that we can talk about. I, you know, I have a lot of interest in how this is all coming into the contemporary world. And I wanted to focus more on the uh, transmission of these methods of mindfulness. So what I'll ask you to do for next week, if this resonates with you, I'm going to come back next week and talk further about a different aspect of the heritage from Mahasi Sayadaw and the Burmese tradition, which is the model of the development of practice towards liberation. We have the method. How do we actually, what's the developmental map? That's my aim. And I'll also, we can also continue with some of what we've done here and I'll try to answer some of the questions I couldn't answer so well. Um, and I'll, I'll try to, I think I, I'm, I better watch, I might do PowerPoint presentations indefinitely. They're, <laughs> they're very interesting. So what I'd last, like to ask you to do is take the handout, which is a summary of, um, sort of a summary and condensation of the method of meditative noting as a core tool for mindfulness. And I'll invite you to bring this practice into your formal meditation every day in the next week. And if you can, use it some in the flow of daily life. You know, you, you can do it in a variety of ways. You can do it with just neutral things as you're walking, just notice walking, stepping, and so forth. The aim is not to have great noting. The aim is to have this be a support to be aware of the present moment. That's always the rationale. And if noting, get, noting in the long run for some people gets in the way, but for a lot of people, it's a tremendous tool. You can use it especially if you notice negative thoughts occurring. Give it a label. It'll help you to notice. Notice you know, self-judgment. Notice um, judging another and so forth. So that's my invitation for the next week. So may this be of benefit for all of us. And may we carry this forward into our daily lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.